This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning, October 22nd, 2022. And this is our 106th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And that battle continues. Uh, Currently, this week, our COVID positivity rate here in Connecticut is 8.69%. That's been fairly constant for the past several months in the area of 9 to 12%. So uh, on average, we're about 10%. That means 10 out of every 100 people at a gathering are in some way infected by COVID-19. So we're not there yet. But what we have done is we've been able to insulate ourselves from the standpoint of wearing masks around crowded gatherings, social distancing, but most importantly, getting vaccinated. And that's why it saddens me to see that so many people have abandoned the idea of getting vaccinated. Because if we're going to get out of this thing, everybody has resigned themselves. I see people throwing their arms up. Well, it's going to be here. It's here forever. Okay. I'll agree with that. But the point is that we have made tremendous strides in keeping the number of hospitalizations down and the number of deaths down. So we've reduced them. But 400 people a day die in the United States that are in some way affected by COVID-19. And that's not acceptable. And now we're dealing with another infection, the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, that I'm going to talk about a little bit more in our next segment, uh, because it's something that anybody who's watched the news or read a newspaper in the last week could see that Connecticut is now nationally featured because of how much it's affected us locally at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and at Yale Children's Hospital. So we'll talk more about this. As many of you know, uh, this month has been Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So today my guest on the show is going to be Dr. Kristen Zarvos. Dr. Zarvos has been a frequent guest on our show regarding women's health issues. She's medical director of the Carl J. Kripek Senior Comprehensive Women's Health Center at Trinity Health of New England at St. Francis Hospital. And she always brings with her new information, and it's always useful information to protect our population. And in this case, uh, I have a lot of questions about breast cancer. We're hearing a lot more about women with dense breasts and newer ways of imaging, who should be getting a mammogram, and how important a mammogram is to at least begin the process. So we're going to chat with her in the second half of our program today. 
as always, I like to talk a little bit about this day in medicine. So October 22, 1807, Dr. Magnus Huss was born. Now, Dr. Huss was a Swedish physician, and he coined the term alcoholism. Back in 1807 is when he was born. He did this later on in his career, coined the term alcoholism, and was the first to define it as a disease. So a lot of people say, well, alcoholism, is it really a disease? And it absolutely is because of all the problems it brings with it. So that addiction brings with it so many issues, especially with respect to liver disease. Uh, in my field in neurology, it is a direct toxic event to the brain. It causes the brain to shrink. So many times you'll see alcoholics uh, walk differently. They walk with a wider base gait to try to keep their balance. And this is because if you look at the brain on a CT scan, you see atrophy of the midline cerebellum. So let me explain a little bit. When we look at the cerebellum, the, the balance area of the brain, right, where we coordinate our movements, when we think of atrophy, we think it shrinks from the outside. But with alcoholism, it actually shrinks from the middle of the cerebellum. So it's very distinctive. And that's why there's so much ataxia, difficulty walking. Alcoholics fall frequently, even when not intoxicated, and injure their brain. Speaking of the brain, since we're on the topic, I saw an interesting video this week. And this was of brain surgery being performed in Italy. They were removing a brain tumor from a professional saxophonist. And basically, what you're doing with the brain, so I will try to explain a little bit. The brain doesn't have like a center for each function. You know, the old phrenology where there's one thing works this, that, or the other thing. Uh, or, you know, hearing is here, vision is here. Uh, there are predominant areas of the brain, but the brain is this complex network of wires. So in this case, they were removing the brain tumor. And in the operating room, what they'll often do is wake the patient up and see if they could speak, ask them to identify certain things. But in this case, they wanted him to be able to play the saxophone during the surgery so that they would not encroach on areas of the brain that would interrupt this function. So it was amazing. We see it all the time where they're uh, showing up flashcards and things in the emergency room to have people identify things, but I've never seen it where they had the patient play a musical instrument and serenade the entire staff as they outlined how they were going to remove this tumor. Uh, brain surgery ha has changed so, so much. Um, I think that it was just fascinating to me, and I'm sure if you get to see that, I'm sure it's out there on the Internet uh, somewhere. You know, we're hearing a lot about marijuana, and now we see it being sold all over. I read a recent paper town. Um, you know, they announced they have two new businesses coming to this uh, small city. Uh, the two new businesses were 
uh, places where they could sell marijuana. Uh, they have now proposed uh, amnesty for people who are arrested on am marijuana charges. So it really gives people the impression that marijuana is something safe to use. Now, there are some medicinal advantages to it people have found and uh, from various parts of it. But that doesn't mean it's safe or safe for everybody to participate in. Much like cigarettes are not safe. So I, I really wanted to make that clear. I don't want people getting the impression that marijuana, smoking marijuana, is a safe thing to do. It's not. And there are risks. Just as there are risks with taking medication, there are risks. And in this case, I mean, obviously you're inhaling a toxic substance, so it has a direct effect on the lungs. Uh, the Gates Foundation just pledged $1.2 billion to eradicate polio. Uh, we talked about it here. You know, we're not hearing much about it now. I think that in the areas of New York where they started seeing more polio uh, in the wastewater, I think people have gone out and there's been renewed effort to get vaccinated for polio. But it's still a big problem worldwide. And it's good to see that there are private foundations investing in trying to wipe out polio, which is such a dramatic paralytic disease uh, that lasts so long in many people and affects many young people. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. We're going to talk about the respiratory syncytial virus. And as always, I'm always looking for ways that we could avoid dementia. And I think I stumbled on one again. We've talked about a few of them periodically on the program, um, different things you can do, such as hearing aids, we found, is, is a modifiable risk factor for dementia. We're going to talk about another one uh, shortly. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. So I was talking at, right before the break about another modifiable risk factor, ways that we could avoid dementia. And a recent study performed in the United Kingdom uh, looked at people from their database, right? So they have this, in, in socialized medicine, they have these databases where they looked at large numbers of people. And in this case, <clears throat> they enrolled people from February 2013 to December 2015 and looked at them for a period of 6.9 years and uh, followed up with these people. So they were able to look at uh, over 78,000 people. And what they looked at was the number of steps people took per day and its association with the risk of dementia. And what they found is the higher number of steps was associated with a lower risk of all causes of dementia, so not just Alzheimer's disease. The key number was 10,000 steps. So on or about 10,000 steps per day, and more if you had higher intensity steps. So if those steps were more vigorous walking or running, uh, you had a stronger association with limiting your risk for dementia. So you know, I started recommending this to patients a long time ago when 
I don't even know if we use them now, but those pedometers. I mean, it's it's a simple thing to do if you're able to get out and walk. Even if you walk slowly, you have joint replacement, whatever. And And even in the winter, if you have a treadmill, okay, or you can go to the mall. I know at the West Farms Mall, Crystal Mall, there are malls all over the state where they have morning walks. Just get a little pedometer. They're like five bucks. You put them on your belt. I mean, now we have the Fitbit. Uh, anybody who has an Apple Watch can see their number of steps. <laughs> Whether they want to see them or not, they're there. Or even on your iPhone or any phone. But it's key that this is another modifiable. It's something else we can do to avoid dementia. Now, I also don't want to hear people saying, oh, my goodness, uh, I'm old now. Okay, it's not going to make a difference. That's not the case. So, you know, in this case, right, they looked at people from age 40 to 79. So it went across uh, middle and older ages. So I urge you to get out and walk. I mean, today's a phenomenal day for it. And there's so many great places to walk, enjoy the foliage. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's so many simple things uh, like at work, right? Everybody wants to park so close to the front door. Don't do it. Park a little further away so you get your steps in going into work, right? Park, park further away. Uh, take the stairs as opposed to the elevator if you're just going up one or two floors. So there are a lot of ways of doing it, and, and I hope uh, you'll join me in doing it. something I, I try to do myself every day. Uh, the respiratory syncytial virus. You know, if you're here in Connecticut, actually, if you're anywhere in the country paying attention to the news, you're hearing about this outbreak of RSV. Re respiratory syncytial virus is a virus that's very common in children. Usually, children have it before the age of two and have an immunity for it. Uh, but it usually hits in late winter is when pediatricians start seeing more of it. And it's different. It's not, it, although it's a respiratory virus, it's not like the COVID virus that transmits via droplets uh, only. Uh, in this case, you can get it from surfaces. That's why you need to stress for children to wash hands and not put things in their mouth that they shouldn't. But uh, in, in looking at it, the symptoms typically are the typical upper respiratory symptoms, right? congestion, cough, sore throat. The symptoms peak around day five and take about two weeks to clear up. But in many cases, it can get become a lower respiratory virus where you'll see bronchitis and, and pneumonia. Well, what's happened here is we're starting to see it sooner this year and in much larger numbers. So where you might have 20 children at its peak in the hospital with RSV. We're not even at the peak yet. And at Connecticut Children's, they have over 100 children in the hospital, which is odd because they don't usually need to be hospitalized. I think those that need to be hospitalized are usually uh, children who are extremely young, and those that have ongoing respiratory problems. It's the same with most illnesses, right? The extremely young and the extremely old uh, get affected most. But in this case, it focuses on the young, and that's why uh, these hospitals are uh, really uh, at, at a breaking point. Now, why did it come? Well, 
children have been isolated now, right? They've not been around other children, so we haven't seen the virus. It's kind of catching up with us now that children are back in school and are not being masked. Now, before some of you folks are saying, aha, uh-huh, you see, we should have let them go to school and not had the mask and just let the COVID virus run through things. That would be a huge mistake because, one, COVID-19 is a deadly virus. Don't need to remind anybody of that. Uh, Even the deniers who were previously deniers have to realize that it was a deadly virus. RSV is not a deadly virus. You do not see bodies piling up related to RSV. So we're going to get through this. Is it going to tax our health system? Yeah, it's going to keep things busy for a while. But we'll get through it, and it's going to be longer. But it won't have a long-lasting effect on the health of our children and on our population as it is. Uh, Last week, I I touched on the subject in this small town in Vermont. I wanted to give some follow-up to that study. So for those of you uh, who don't remember, small town in in Vermont called Richmond, Vermont. Uh, There are about 4,100 residents. And they found that children are starting to have more cavities, which is something that's fairly odd these days, right? Because we have put fluoride in our water since the 1940s and and 50s. A matter of fact, uh, 73% of all communities uh, of the U.S. population, 73% of our population is served by water systems with adequate fluoride uh, to protect teeth. And the fluoride decreases tooth decay and cavities by 25%. That has been proven. That's science that's been proven time and again. And, and it's more than just cavities, right? Uh, we had Dr. Matthew Prezioso on our program, and we talked a lot about how the mouth is the entry point for other diseases, cardiac diseases, other infections can start from that, especially when you're in developing nations where they don't have good dental care, don't have fluoride in the water. And it, it's, it was key. So all of a sudden... Uh, This gentleman, Kendall Chamberlain, who is Richmond's water and wastewater superintendent, he unilaterally decided he would reduce the fluoride level because he had concerns about the changes in its sourcing and recommended levels. So because one of the sources by which we bought the fluoride or obtained the fluoride was China, And obviously, there's this whole thing on the Internet where anything from China or Asia is bad. He decided to single-handedly reduce that. Didn't present it to a committee, didn't present it to a board, didn't tell the people who live there, but he was going to alter the water they drink. Sorry, folks, that doesn't work. That's not right by any standard because that water is for the entire community. So anyhow, in follow-up to that story, um, this gentleman uh, resigned, uh, which was a nice word for letting him go. Um, But basically, he submitted a five-page resignation letter um, with, uh, I'm sure, the usual diatribes and things that he believed from the Internet 
uh, on this topic. The reason I bring it up and emphasize it so much is because we have to maintain our water supply and we have to really be knowledgeable of the people who have control of that water supply. The water supply is not a political entity, okay? It's not like we can't let the Democrats or we can't let the Republicans have control. This is a health issue. It transcends, right? Dental care, oral care transcend the politics of it and what people believe on the Internet. It needs to be based on science, and that's the big difference. We're going to take a short break. Now we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Kristen Zarvos, and we're going to be chatting a little bit more about breast cancer awareness uh, during this month that every year we dedicate to raising our awareness of breast cancer, the treatments, and how to make the diagnosis. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Aless, and uh, I wanted to just touch on everybody, just so you all know that if you need to reach me, either during the rest of the program or during the week, you can get me at info at alessimd.com. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Zarvos. Dr. Zarvos is a surgeon specializing in women's health and breast diseases of the breast. She's medical director of the Carl J. Crappy um, Senior Com Comprehensive Women's Health Center at Trinity Health of New England at St. Francis Hospital. She has been a frequent guest on our program and always a great resource for our listeners and for me and my family. Uh, Kristen, welcome back. Good morning. Uh, it's great to hear your voice. I wish I could be in the studio with you, but this is this is far better than what we had to endure during COVID, isn't it? Absolutely. So uh, let's get right to it. Um, give us the update. Where are we from a statistics standpoint, at least, with breast cancer? One statistic I recently heard was 20% of all breast cancers are detected in women younger than the age of 50. And is that a pretty valid statistic? Because I was, I was surprised that the number was that high. Well, I really am glad you bring up the issue of age because let's address young women first and sure. then we'll talk about women on the other end of the spectrum. So we are seeing a large number of women with breast cancer who are under 50. And why that is disconcerting is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends not starting mammograms until 50. Fortunately, the American Cancer Society recommends starting mammograms at the age of 40, and perhaps even younger if a patient has risk factors, which we can also talk about if you choose. Please. So you raise a very, very important issue about age of onset and what the guidelines state. And in that number, Actually, 30% of black women develop breast cancer before the age of 50. So if the wow. national guidelines are embraced, that means a third of young black women will not have the opportunity to have access to life-saving screening. Wow. Um, I didn't realize that. So uh, so what are we doing? So what are doctors recommend? You know, the, the prevent, uh, I have a real bee in my bonnet about the 
Preventive Services Task Force because I, I, I firmly believe that they're agents of the insurance companies. So what are doctors recommending? What are you recommending to patients in general? And what should primary care physicians be and, and uh, gynecologists be recommending? Because so many people get their, so many women get their primary care or their initial breast care from their gynecologist. I think that, that's something we've come to realize. Well, Dr. Wessie, I want to break it down into three aspects of care, mammography, breast exams, and self-exams. So right now, most internist organizations say that when a patient has a complete physical, they don't include a breast exam. And of course, I'm not objective about this, but I think that and you and I went to medical school, we we're sure that our mentors and teachers wouldn't have said, do a complete exam, but don't examine the breast. Right. But that is a recommendation. I have a lot of problem with that. I think most patients do. Gynecologists do do breast exams and their teams. So we're, the providers include APRNs and PAs. So I think a woman, when she goes in to have her total physical or physical, she should say to her doctor, will you examine my breast, please? So that, that as far as what primary care is recommending or what breast surgeons recommend as far as clinical exam. Number two, mammography. We encourage women to have mammograms at the age of 40 because there is data that 40% of more women are alive today in America because of screening mammography. And while there'll be controversies, different people will write papers, it all boils down to that it saves lives in women in their 40s. There is strong data that cannot be refuted. When people... Uh, are confused about, well, this article said that, another article, be perfectly clear when there's a change in the recommendations, it's because of computer models. And I always like to say here in Connecticut, we know about um, uh, computer models of weather, Uh, where is the storm going to hit or not, or the snowstorm. So the facts remain. Mammography in the 40s saves lives, regardless of ethnicity. And so the uh, recommendations are 40 and perhaps younger if you have a strong family history of breast cancer or if you're at increased risk. The third category is self-exam, and uh, those of us who take care of women cannot hesitate from saying, women, know your bodies, and the way you know your bodies is self-exam once a month. The, some of the organizations have backed off from that, but again, I think it's common sense. And I always like to say, ask a woman who found her own breast cancer whether she should have done self-exam or not. So you've touched on a few points, uh, and I think uh, one of the things you're saying, so when you go, when a woman goes for her primary care visit, right, she needs yes. to self-advocate. You need to advocate and say, can you do a breast exam? Absolutely. Right? Okay. And, and I like this conversation because I feel that patients should be empowered and, yes. and with, with good medical information, not necessarily um, some of the theories and postulated on the Internet, but there's, there's good things you can do to advocate for yourself. Yes. And one of them I always find is a self-exam, even for, for men examining their testicles for a mass. Now, we see these data who say, the recent study saying, Self-exam didn't really help in the long run. But you're absolutely right. Talk to the woman who did the self-exam. And, and I think it's a form of empowerment. So uh, I'm glad we got that cleared up. But um, 
you know, some people are faced with insurance, right? So if you're under the age of 40 and you want to have a breast exam, either for based on your history or family history or want to have a mammogram done at an earlier age, do you generally get approval or are people having to pay for this out of pocket? It's my understanding that if your um, doctor indicates the reason to do have the mammogram done, that then it will be covered. Now, let's just a little update on the state of Connecticut. Uh, A bill passed this summer and goes into effect January 1st, thanks to a woman named Jan Kritzman. Um, It says that women will not have to pay for deductibles or co-pays for mammograms, diagnostic mammograms. So I think, I hope under that, uh, uh, under that umbrella, that women will be able to get. So it really requires a woman. She can't just call up and say, I'm 35 and want a mammogram. She'll need a provider to say why. So, for example, if her mother had breast cancer, mammograms should be done 10 years prior. So if her mother had breast cancer at 45, if she has a strong family history, uh, and we can go into uh, details if you like. I also want to say there's a federal bill coming down the road. U.S. Congresswoman Rosa DeLara is uh, introducing the same bill so that all women across country, including Medicare women, because state laws don't uh, control Medicare, will not have to pay for deductibles for screening mammogram, screening ultrasound if dense breasts, diagnostic mammograms or MRIs. And I throw that out there because I, I love what you say about empowering women. And if women get a bill after January 1st in the state, they need to challenge their insurance company to say, there's a law that I don't have to pay this copay. Finally, something got done in, in Hartford yes. um, that is going to benefit us all from a health standpoint. L- let me move right on. Uh, we're hearing a lot about dense breasts since we're on the subject of young women, right? Katie yes. Cork has come out and uh, shared with everyone that she has breast cancer, and it was found, despite the fact that she has dense breasts, she had to have some alternative imaging. Can you talk a little bit about dense breasts and what type of imaging needs to be done beyond or in lieu of mammogram? Yes. So let's think about dense breasts like driving in fog. So if you were in Willimantic this morning, you were driving in a lot of fog, and all of us do. And we know that fog is, is white and can seem dense when you're driving in it. So if you think about a breast, that has a dense tissue, and dense, most young women have dense breast tissue, and as we age, breast tissue can atrophy or use the term dry up and then no longer is dense, although I recently saw a woman 95 with dense breast. So the good news in this state, in 38 states, and soon nationally, every woman will have a mammogram report that speaks to her density. But let's get back to it. When you're driving in fog, you can't see, and so if your breasts are dense, the background looks white. Now, cancers look white on mammograms, so they're obscured, just like when you're driving in fog. So there is uh, a law in 38 states that if you have dense breasts, you qualify for your insurance to pay for screening ultrasounds. And screening ultrasounds can see through that fog, can see through the dense tissue, and that's why Katie Couric's cancer was found. And so... Patients in this state and soon across the country, based on an FDA edict, will know if their breasts are dense or not. So then a patient has to 
be empowered to say, my breasts are dense. Why didn't my doctor or why didn't they recommend a screening ultrasound? And then she has to take the initiative to say, I heard about Katie Kirk. I want to have a, a screening ultrasound. And again, as I just said, in this state and soon nationally, if passed, there'll be legislation that they do not need. Women do not need socioeconomic status or the cost of it in this time of inflation to be a barrier. Please get your screening ultrasound. Now, if women have additional high risk, there may be a role for an MRI. But something I really want to bring up here that just recently happened, um, I had a patient say to me, well, why should I get a mammogram if my breasts are dense? I should just get a, have an ultrasound. And we've always known that small cancers called ductal carcinoma in situ, not to get too technical here, can still be seen on mammograms before they form a lump that would be seen on ultrasound. And I want to share myself recently had a mammogram. It went a four millimeter cancer was found that didn't show up on ultrasound. So the point is this, mammograms, ultrasounds complement each other. One does not replace the other. They go hand in hand for the best possible chance that we'll find a cancer early because if cancers are found early, there's a 99% cure rate. I guess my question is, go to ultrasound. Uh, you didn't use the term MRI, right? We used to go to MRI uh, somewhere in the middle of that. Yes. MRIs are great tools. And I didn't mention MRI because not all women with dense breast tissue would qualify for an MRI. But I'm really glad you asked this because women who can qualify for an MRI are women with a strong family history of breast cancer, um, female uh, on the mother's side or the father's side, women who have a genetic mutation that have been tested, women who've had previous pre-malignant biopsies, uh, women who have a male in their family with breast cancer, and I'm glad to talk about that, the number of men with breast cancer in the United States. MRIs are good tools, and but they can be prohibitively expensive. That's why these two laws I just mentioned are going to take away that barrier. Um, and the American Cancer Society recommends MRIs under these criteria I just gave to you, and that's based on a study that came out in March of 2007. All right, so let's go to the other end of the spectrum that you brought up, older women, right? We've yes. addressed younger women. Yes. What are the criteria for older women? Is there a point where women should stop getting mammograms? Well, I think that's an excellent question. So I'm happy to say uh, that more and more women who are older are alive today because of management of heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. So we have a lot of women in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And my youngest patient was 104, God bless her. So we know the highest number of women with breast cancer are in their 70s and 80s. The U.S. Preventive Task Force says to stop mammograms at 74. And so here again, I love your message, empower women. So while that is something that many primary care physicians embrace, you asked me earlier, what are primary care physicians doing? And I'm answering that question. It's very important to understand that there are other medical organizations that acknowledge that we should continue mammograms as long as a woman is healthy. Uh, some of them say specifically if you anticipate a patient's going to live 10 years. But basically, it's if a patient's healthy, we should continue those mammograms. And why? Well, you don't want a woman 85 with an advanced cancer. And we know as breast cancer surgeons, if you find a cancer early, 
in a woman, you can have the minimal intrusion on her physical life and her quality of life, maybe a small operation, maybe a medication. So I would say I echo what many of these other national organizations say. As long as a woman is healthy, continue to do mammograms. You know, it's interesting because patients are always saying, uh, frustrated, doctors are doing so many tests, I have to go for all these tests. I often tell them, you got to start worrying when we stop doing tests. So, <laughs> I, uh, I agree. don't anticipate you living. So uh, basically, uh, that's part of it. So uh, let's move on. Let's get to treatment. So now we've identified uh, breast cancer. Um, what are the treatments now, and how is this all evolving? Well, the the research dollars that have been devoted have made incredible progress. So we look at cancers. There are three characteristics we look on the surface of the cancer. They're called estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, and something called HERNU2. And we know that um, certain cancers might require chemotherapy based on their characteristics. And we also know all data-driven, all science-driven, that um, by receiving chemotherapy, sometimes prior to surgery, sometimes after, if it's given prior, it's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we can improve survival enormously. Surgery, we, the earlier we find a cancer, the less intrusive the cancers are. Uh, in America today, far fewer women require mastectomies because size is a component of when a woman can have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. And if you find a cancer smaller, you're less likely to need more uh, invasive surgery in the form of a mastectomy. And there's a whole battery of medications that women with another type of breast cancer can take afterwards that improves survival. And that's why more and more women who are diagnosed with a mammogram or by self-exam or their doctor's exam and subsequent studies are alive today in the United States. So uh, from that standpoint, now, uh, the, we've talked a little bit about genetics in the past and, and receptors and things such as that. Are more of the treatments and drugs targeted uh, much like personalized medicine? We hear a lot about personalized medicine, right? where yeah. you could take a tumor. And I think, really, breast tumors have led the way in this in, in many respects. But uh, are we starting to see where a vaccine can be put together specific to, for a, women, a woman's breast tumor? You know, that's really a great question. And many years ago when I was on the faculty of UConn, there was a researcher who's still there doing incredible work uh, on creating a vaccine. And I, I'm talking around 2000, we would take breast tissue and he would work on a vaccine. We're, it's not here today, but we're certainly hoping that it's coming. And he is continuing to do incredible research um, at UConn, right here in our own state. I think he may receive a Nobel Prize someday. But there is work on that. We're not there yet. But I have to tell you, in my lifetime, there was a kind of breast cancer called HERNU2 that when we discovered it, um, it had a very aggressive nature to it. And today, there are one, two 
medications that those patients can receive that's called immunotherapy and targets their tumor. And that's exactly what you're talking about. We have the science, we have the data, we take each woman, we look at the research, and then we individualize what is going to give her the best chance to eradicate that cancer and it not return. I guess in closing, I've got about a minute left, but uh, I want to make a plug for breast centers because I think people have to understand that we now have specialized centers that spend a lot of time and effort, much like at St. Francis Hospital, um, and, and women should not hesitate to go to a breast center. Can you just explain to everybody in this one minute yeah. what makes up a breast center? What makes it different than other facilities? Well, at St. Francis Breast Center, what we have is the opportunity for a patient to have her mammogram. If her breasts are dense, have uh, a screening ultrasound right then and there. If she has abnormalities on her mammogram and needs additional mammographic views, right then and there in real time, not receiving a call or later yesterday. As well, if a patient has an abnormal mammogram with our clinicians right on site that can see her the same day uh, and examine her and have a biopsy set up promptly. And when patients have cancer here, anyone with breast cancer has a nurse navigator, so there's a whole team to help her and her family. My husband always reminds me breast cancer is a family disease, and we encourage families to be participatory in the woman's care. Okay. Is the best number the 860-714-6318 number for the yes. center? Yes, it is. It's great to talk to you again. I really thank you for all the questions you asked. They're very insightful, and you and I have the same goal. We want people to live and live healthy with quality of life and dignity. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for everything you do. And getting the message out here on this program has been key. So thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Stay well, everybody. Thanks. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap up this program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and in wrapping up today's program, I really want to thank uh, Dr. Kristen Zarvos for her time. Uh, you know, so I hear from many people, and why I have guests on like her is really not just for the people listening to our program, but to promote a discussion. So if you hear something that might affect a family member, uh, you may want to bring it up and just say, hey, listen, I was listening to Healthy Rounds, and... Uh, this woman was talking about mammograms in older age or genetic testing for young women who have a history in their family of breast cancer or ovarian cancer. You know, prompt the conversation uh, because that's what brings people to be more alert, to be more proactive with their own health and with developing a trusted relationship with their physician. Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics. One of them is going to be how are we going to stamp out mosquito-borne illnesses. Mosquito-borne illnesses affect 700 million people in the world today. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it at odyssey.com or apple or wherever you get your podcasts until next week this is dr anthony alessi please stay healthy this has been healthy rounds with dr anthony alessi 
Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.